it is this, in the sixth hymn of the seven, verses 12 to 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is what the people are looking for. They're looking for the house of God to be built, and they're looking for a king who will reign in the kingdom forever. And so who comes next in the scene? We have Solomon. Solomon starts a construction project in 966 BC. He finishes it in 959 BC. And so the things are looking great. You have a temple of God, the place where God will dwell with his people, and you have a very wise king who is leading the, the nation. So is this the fulfillment of the promise? Well, we see that later on, Solomon does something that every man has done. He dies. And then another king comes after him, and he dies as well, and more and more and more. And what we find is that it's not just that the kings are dying, we're also seeing that the king gets divided. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, like Robom and Jobom kind of split. And then we see that the people fall into just moral decay, spiritual degradation, they turn away from him. We see that the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. Things aren't looking good. But we think, well, we have the temple still. We got a king. He's from the line of David, so maybe things are going to be hopeful. But when in reading of, of Jeconiah, or sometimes called Jehoiachin, or sometimes called Keniah, we read of this prophecy of, from Jeremiah in chapter 22. It says this And as I live, declares the Lord, Though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore the signet ring on my right hand, yet I will tear you off. Thus says the Lord, in verse 10, going down to verse 30, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. These are all ominous words. The signet ring, the symbol of authority and power, is shifting there. And it seems that the big lines are going to be he shall have no offspring, and no one will succeed him. No one will come after him and sitting on the throne of David. So now we have to think, what's going to happen? Well, so it looks like the king has been cut off, but we, got, we have the temple. We can still dwell with God because we have the temple. Well, that doesn't last very long because in 586 BC, the Babylonians come in. And Nebuchadnezzar, on his third time, gets in and destroys Jerusalem. And in part of his destruction in Jerusalem, the temple itself is destroyed. So then what are we to do with that covenant? What are we to do with that promise given to David? With this offspring, this, this house that will be built, and that this offspring will rule forever. What do we do with that? No king, no house. 538 BC, 50,000 Jews return. They come under the leadership of Zerubbabel, uh, instead of as the governor. They return home, and they're, they're allowed to go home by a decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. So we, we're starting to think things are looking good. 
And then they, they built and they built, and after two years, they finally finished the foundation. They built the altar, they rebuilt the, the foundation for the temple, and people are starting to worship the Lord again. Things are starting to look up. This is what you read when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah. But at some point, Samaritans say, hey, let's, let's join you in the building house. Jesus said, no, we're going to build the house for our God. So they're not allowed to, and so what the Samaritans do, they start scheming. And they start putting pressure on them, and they start pressing them, and they stop the construction project. So 538 BC, they return. 536 BC, the foundation is laid. And then the next 16 years, the sound of a hammer on the construction side of the temple is not heard. No construction is made. It stopped. For 16 years, you could say that the matter of speaking was silence. Cyrus is dead. His predecessor is dead. And Darius is now the new enemy. This is the context. This is where we're at when we read the book of Haggai. The people are back in the land. The temple foundation has been laid. But for 16 years, nothing has been done. No work. Think for me, with me for a moment. Do you think uh, what message do you think these people need to hear? They have been delivered by God in a mighty way. Brought into exile, and God has delivered them. They're back in their homes. Their homes are completely and utterly destroyed. It has been laid empty and barren and ruined for 70 years. So you come back home, and everything is destroyed, and maybe you're going to a place that you didn't even grow up in 70 years in the past. So there's, there's definitely some of the 50,000 who did not know the temple beforehand, they did not know this man, they did not grow up there, they grew up in that So they come back and they see all this destruction, they're trying to pick up the pieces. What message would you deliver to them? What message would you deliver to these people who have not worked on this for 16 years? That's the content of Haggai. So let's go ahead and jump into the content of here. Haggai, just as we get ready to jump into it, he had a ministry that spans four months. Not very long when you consider, you know, reading Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or any of the other prophets. His is four months, start, finish, and then that's all we hear from him. And we, we know that because he gives us some pretty precise dates. You're just looking at verse one of chapter one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. We hear how a date. You're going to find these dates scattered all throughout the, the book of Haggai. You're going to find actually five dates here. You're going to see this is really the entire ministry that will have Haggai. But another thing you're going to find scattered throughout this book, these 38 verses, is that 26 times you're going to read something that says something to the effect of, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came, or declares the Lord. 26 times you read this phrase 
in these 32 verses. Haggai is clearly the messenger. He's delivering the word, but it's not his word. What the scriptures are making abundantly clear to us is that this is God's word through Haggai. This is a word declared from the Lord. And in this book, we see that the people are called five times to consider, to think carefully about the ways, to think carefully, consider the words that they're being told. And in the same way, I want us to carefully consider this word of God that's being declared to us this afternoon. So this gives us the start of the book. The book is divided up into four messages. And so we're going to look at the first message, we're going to look at the second message, we're going to skip the third one for the sake of time, and we're going to go into the fourth message. So let's see if we can do that. It's only 30 years. So, uh, August 29th, 520 BC. That's the date that this first message comes. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while that this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We see a contrast that's set up here. We have the house of the Lord, and how is it described? Verse 4, it's described as this house is one that lies in ruins. It's still not complete. The land has been devastated, and though the foundation of the temple has been laid, what construction projects have continued? mentioned before, the hammer is silent on the temple grounds for 16 years, but there is still the sound of a hammer. And where is that? Well, you see here in verse 4, the house of God is in ruins, but what? What are they doing? They're dwelling in paneled houses. Houses are furnished with expensive sorts of wood that's used to decorate the inside of the house. They're working on their homes, they're rebuilding their homes, but the house of God is in I think one interesting question to ask is where did they get this wood? Where did it come from? And I think it's interesting to ask that because in verse 8 it says this Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in. So they're the call to go get wood to rebuild the house of God. So where did they get the wood then to build up their own houses? Well, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, we read that. 15 years prior to this event that we're reading about here, Ezra and the Israelites paid for precious woods, cedar wood, from Lebanon, and they brought it to Jerusalem. So they brought all this precious wood, and what was the purpose for using that wood? It was to build a temple. But God tells them, go get wood. Because the wood is gone. People have taken the wood that was supposed to be used to rebuild the house of God. They're more concerned with their comfort. They're more concerned with this lavish lifestyle and ease that they had stopped working on the house of God. They continued to work. They worked on their own house. The 
and, and what was the fruit of their work and their labor? Was it very good? Did they, they sowed? Did they harvested? Never had enough. And they ate. And they're full. They drank. They took money and they put it in the bags and described as if they put it in the bags and pulled it. They were being judged by God. Now, before we're quick to condemn these people, I want to say something. What would we have done? Imagine again, you're returning to the land that for some of us may be a land that is foreign to us. We grew up in Babylon, we've grown up learning the customs and the language, we've grown, grown accustomed to the comforts that comes living in a prosperous kingdom. And you're, you're coming to this land where it's just destroyed. What would you have prioritized? What would you have? You have to be more focused on your own lives. Should we focus on being satisfied with that world, working on the lawn, the garden, and all of that? Just keeping that in mind, we can see that we may be righteous like them. But the fact of the matter is, for 16 years, instruction didn't move forward because the people didn't. They even made excuses. What do we see there in verse 2? These people say, the, uh, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. They're making excuses. No, God is sovereign. It's in God's providential will for things to happen according to his timing. It's not the time. It's not the time for us to rebuild the house. So they make these excuses. Think about all the ways that God has worked to bring them back, to deliver them from their captors, to, to have them have the freedom to go, to rebuild the, the temple. The problem was apathy, self-interest. They had become satisfied with the things of this world, which is a great temptation to all of us. To become satisfied with the things of this world. And in a, in a manner, we rebel against Lord, who has called us to work on greater things, to build the precious materials and foundation that has been laid for us. We're called to work, and we're called to work is to build a house. But which house? That's the question. Which house are you building? These people are being disciplined by God, like I mentioned before. They when, when they were prior to them entering the promised land, and if you were in the Old Testament class, you remember we were discussing this when we looked at Deuteronomy. You saw that they were presented with a choice. They could keep covenant faithfulness with God, and they, they would inherit many blessings. But if they disobeyed God, God would pour out upon them many, many curses. And what we see here is that those curses are they're evidently they're falling on these people because they have been rebellious and been disobedient to the Lord. They committed to working on their own houses as opposed to the work that the Lord had commanded them to work into. And so they're facing these curses, and the curses did not cause them to repent. In fact, for 16 years they continued obstinate. For 16 years they continued to just do what they were doing and wonder why do we not have enough? So the Lord calls them. Lord calls us. Consider your ways. That's the question that's staring us. 
Does God's will trump everything else? Are we completely satisfied in Christ? Carefully consider. Or is it other things like jobs, families, sports teams, vacations, hunting trips, fishing trips, children's sporting events, our much needed relaxation, relaxation on the weekends? Carefully consider is your complete satisfaction in Christ and we committed to Him. So, have that context, have this message. What would be the response? We know these people, right? We read their history over and over again. Where they, they're described as stiff-necked people. So, good luck, that guy. You're going to deliver this message. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like it at all. They're, gonna, they're probably going to throw you out of the city. But what do we read? And I think this is the most amazing thing. In verse 12, we read then Zerubbabel. So this is a governor. You can say in a way that he's like a king. You can, you can say he's and then we see, and Joshua, who is what? He's the high priest. And then who else? All the remnants of the people. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. As the Lord their God had sent him, the people feared How amazing is that? They repent. They repent. Turn away, and they 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 realize you're right. You're doing wrong. They turn from their sins, and they they start building. They fear the Lord. What a what a wonderful thing to hear. And and what what's even greater is what happens in verse thirteen. They turn back to the Lord. They fear the Lord. And what do we see in verse thirteen? And something that we heard even this morning. Right. Haggai, the message of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what does he say to them? He says, I, I am with you. How, how good is this? How, how much better is this than to have a lavish house with panel flooring and with you know, electricity and AC and all this other stuff? Like, how much better is it to have him, the Lord, People respond. They respond immediately. They busy themselves in preparing to do this work and to rebuild the temple. And the Lord encourages them to do this. I am with you. I am with you. So 23 days later, we see this in verse 15. The 24th day of the month, the sixth month, the seventh year of years. So 23 days passed. September 21st, construction begins. So the key to hammers again. He did nothing for Israel. What is being done? This is God's will. And in chapters 2, verses 10 through 19, we read Haggai's third message to them. And like I said, we're skipping the third message, but you can read it if you want. Messages 1 and 3 actually go together, they're mirroring one another. And messages 2 and 4, they actually mirror one another in Haggai. So in one of three, we see they both go into a temple building project. They both discuss agricultural curses. They both end with an amazing blessing here in the first one. It's God says, I am with you. And later on, he says, I will bless you. And so they're married. So you know, go home, read it as a family, discuss it. For the sake of time, we're going to look at second and fourth messages. So 
chapter 2, verse 1, we see the first, the first message came August 29th. The second message comes uh, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, which would be October 17th, in 520 BC. And it says this in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelton, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house and its cold on the door? How do you see it now? Is it not as a map in your eyes? It's the, the start the work, the working, and we ask them. How many of y'all have seen the glory and the splendor of Solomon in one Compare that to this. I don't know about y'all, but how many, how many of you here have ever spent a significant amount of time working on some sort of rock? You wanted to build something, and you said, I'm going to commit myself to build this thing, it's going to be great, it's going to be amazing, it's going to change the world, be revolutionary. Maybe not. Uh, you work on something, right? And then, as you're working, you're building it with your hands. Um, after, at some point in time, you stop. You say, I need to see what I've done. So you pick it up. You're examining it, and you're like, okay. All right? And then you set it down, and then you just kind of mutter to yourself, oh, this is garbage. <laughs> spent all this time on this. I'm like, what is this? I don't even know what I'm making. <laughs> what are you feeling in that moment? You, you built this, and you spent so much time with all little tiny details. And then you look at it and you're like, Discouragement, I'm sure, right? You look at this and oh man, I, I can't believe I spent all this time. You doubt yourself. Like, should I even continue in doing this? This is terrible. This work of my hands. Like, I'm, I'm just not capable to do it. And I think what we're seeing here is that the men and women who have been working on this, they were living in it. And they're reflecting back. For those who had seen the previous glory of Saul and stuff, they're looking at it like, Nothing in my eyes. And they're being discouraged. And maybe they're even doubting. Should we continue? Is the Lord going to be pleased in this? And the Lord is, is giving this second message to comfort. Just to give you a little bit of context, we know this happens in the seventh month, the 21st day of the month. And if you were in the Leviticus class in the Testament, then you know what this is. This is the time of festival of weeks. So it starts with the Day of Atonement. This period, this high time, what is on their, the forefront of their minds? They're thinking about their deliverance from Egypt, how God delivered his people. So they're thinking about that in their minds and think how great God has, has done a wonderful work for them. And they're reflecting on that. They're looking at the temple and it's described as nothing in their eyes. But the Lord encourages them. And I love the way that he encourages them. Verses 4 and 5. He says this. Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work! And then he says the most comforting words in here. For I am with you. Oh, what great comfort. 
he is with us in his session. Work. Y'all remember the great love I have for you who delivered you from Egypt? And you're celebrating that right now. I'm remembering that right now. My great love has displayed to you that still that same great love. And we see that because verse 5 he says, According to the covenant that I made with you, my you can The Spirit remains in your midst. So they had broken the covenant. The temple lacked in the glory, but God remains in the He will bless them. He will be with them because He sees their service to Him and calls them to be strong. And how can they be strong? Three times He says, Be strong. How can they? They can be strong because He is with Lord's the best too. The Lord's called us too. Great. I mean, think about it. Do you call the Great Commission? What does the Great Commission say? Therefore, all nations make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them all to help you. That could be a scary thing. Right? I'll talk to you. Okay. Like they reject me. Like they try to attack me. All do this work. What is the Great Commission then? Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28. I will be with you always. God was with them, and God is still with us. He calls us to work. He calls us to work. He calls us to, like He says to them, fear not. We cannot fear, and we can be strong. Not because of anything in and of us, but because he who is greater is with us. Because he is with us. So work. And then he promises of even more, verse 6 through 9, chapter 2. For, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea. Dry land, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house. This house says, Nothing in your eyes, I will fill it with gold. This is the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, in the immediate context, <coughs> How does this get fulfilled? Does the splendor and does the treasures of all the nations, do they actually come into the temple? We see in Ezra chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, we see that there's a decree that's issued by Darius. Darius issues a decree, and okay, uh, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders, the Jews, for the building of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay of where? From the royal revenue, the tribute of the prophets from beyond the river, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, anything needed for the burnt offering to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, at the priest of Jerusalem require, and let that be given to them day by day without fail. We see a fulfillment of that word of God. The treasures of all the nations come in. How do they build? They build because they're given money from the nations. Darius was the emperor 
basically the whole world and conquered everything, and they're, they're getting tribute from the nations. Well, they're rerouting that to Jerusalem to build the house of the Lord. Now, the reality here is that there is a more ultimate fulfillment that we're looking for. And we see that same phrase like shape the nations. We read that somewhere else. The reality is they didn't need so much the temple, this physical building. They didn't need to have a physical building that was glorious and beautiful. What they needed was something more glorious than that. They needed a greater house. A house that eventually did come had a chief cornerstone, which was Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 20, Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us that we are citizens and saints and members of the household of God. It says that we, the church, are built, being built up as a dwelling place of God. Christ himself, he is the cornerstone of this house, of this, in verse 21, that we're being joined together, it's growing into what? It's growing into the holy temple. Into a holy temple in The church is that more glorious house. The Lord is building. That, that house is what is going to give peace to the same universe. And of course, that peace is going to come through the Prince of Peace. But also the Prince of Peace. Through Christ. So we ought to heed the warning from the prophet. So how are we going to do it? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's that into question. How are you building? What materials are you building? We have tested and find out what work. He describes the shaking of all the nations, which later on we actually see um, in verse uh, 21. We see he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, the thrones, the kingdoms, and everything. Um, we see that reference in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 26. It says, At this time, his voice shook the earth. I will not shake, I'll shake not only the earth, but I'll also shake. So what is it pointing to? It's not pointing back to Haggai. It's pointing to the future. This is pointing to a future shaping that's going to occur in the last days when the kingdom is constantly, constantly. What follows this shape? In verse 28, we see, therefore, we're going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what do we do? We offer the God of the worship. Reverence and awe. All the mighty kingdoms of this world will we'll praise God. He's building a kingdom that has more glory than this one that we read in Haggai. He's building a kingdom never shaped. God's people as well will enter So we, we make a cosmic choice with the second message. Oh, the temple rebuilt. Great glory coming. But what about a king? We still need that king. Jehoiachin is a signet ring that the Lord took off. Will he put it back on? That brings us to the fourth message. December 18, 520. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength. Kingdoms and nations and overthrow the chariots, chariots and the riders, and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the, by the sword of his brother. On that day, the 
until you close me, my servant, son shelter, declares the Lord. And I will make a city. I have chosen prayers of the Christ. So here we have the Jehoiachin, who we read about, who's called the guy in Jeremiah 22. He's described as being, he's going to have no offspring, no child. He's the sickness that's going to take him off. What do we read here? We read here that Zerubbabel is made like a city. Here we have the reversal, which would have brought an incredible amount of joy, hope, celebration. The throne of David is back. There will be a king who will sit on this throne forever. And Zerubbabel, he is that signet ring. Signet ring is, you know, was what they used to seal things. You know, had a letter and you pour some wax on it and you get the ring to authenticate it. To have it carry the same weight, authority, and power, they would seal it with this ring. Zerubbabel is that sign. He is the authentication of that fact. And in fact, we find that this is true. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, we read about Jesus. What do we find in that line? We look at Matthew's genealogy, so like you know, David, we look at Solomon, who was the father of Jeroboam, and Abijah, and Asaph, and Jehoshaphat, and Joram, and then Uzziah, and Jotham, and Hezekiah, and Asaph, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. And then we read this in verse 12. And after the deportations of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelter. Shelter was the father of Zerubbabel. This man. He's in line of David, and he's in that very specific line that leads to Christ. He's the authenticated fact that I will have this son. He will sit on it. It will be forever. In, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Zerubbabel is called the governor for Judah. But what do we see he's called here? Those who move about the servant. Yes. He has this level of dignity and prestige. He's but here he's called the servant. The title that we find elsewhere in the scripture is what points to Christ. Okay, we see that all throughout the book of Isaiah. We'll see that even in Ezekiel in chapter 34. Even connecting him to David, he says, I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall be, he shall feed them and be nourished. Well, he's the ring, he's the line that leads to Christ, he's the servant, he's also described as the chosen one. He is chosen one. Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant, whom I hold, and chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him, he will bring forth justice to us. What does that remind us of? That's a beautiful picture right there of Christ's baptism. The spirit descends upon him like a dove, and what does what do we hear the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son, whom I am pleased. What a comfort as we read through this passage. Let's consider a few things. In Haggai's time, the Hebrews were rebellious. They were apathetic. They had the foundation of the temple laid, they had the altar there, but nothing was going on for 16 years. The people had a very hollow worship. For mother, they were very careful to care more so for their material possessions and comforts than finding satisfaction in doing the work of Christ and committing themselves to him and to, to God. In the same way as we read Haggai, we're confronted with those things. 
What worship do we offer to the Lord? Where are we storing up our treasures? What are we most satisfied in? Is it Christ and working and building his house? Or is it our own? We're laying up treasures on earth. Seeking for his kingdom, his righteousness, or our own. The recipients of Haggai's message, they, they did repent, which is amazing to think about. And they turned to God, and God keeps his word and blessing them. In the same way, when sinners repent of their sins and turn to the Lord, they are blessed as well. And when you meet so many spiritual blessings we receive, eternal rewards. We have a great large family that we join into. The people do eventually finish, just to spoil a little, they do finish four years later in 516 BC, they finish the temple. And Lord, I pray that, that we all continue to worship as the work is done. That when the Lord comes, He will find us and that should be disappointed because we won't receive it. We are without without revelation concerning the matter and we leave this. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, From the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. Notice Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. So I exhort you and me today to carefully consider. Is your complete satisfaction in Christ? If so, commit your life to Him. The world is selective. But for those who have tasted and seen, you know that the world is. Because when the shaking is done, one of the things that cannot be shaken begins to fall and just opposes from its course. It says, Therefore, those who faithful to receive in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship and our grace. Father God, you know our place. You know how, how often we turn to satisfying our own flesh. God, you will put on your son, and we make no plans to satisfy our flesh, to gratify his desires. And I pray that throughout this day, throughout this week, we can recall the many lessons that you have given to us, and we recall the blessing of your son. And Lord, I pray that you would put our lives in your hearts, your kingdom. Thank you, Lisa, for your name, sir.